Engel. The Undecideds, or how certain drug lords influenced the new pop culture. We're in the 1980s. Hip-hop is starting to emerge. Cocaine is already everywhere. And soon, crack will be making a dramatic entrance in the ghetto. This unprecedented consumption will allow some dealers to become the kings of the streets and represents the new role models for their community. The Undecideds is going to tell you the journey that eight of these men went through, the harsh and brutal truth. These are the tales of millionaire drug dealers who have a direct impact on the phenomenal success of hip-hop. Think of Dr. Dre, Tupac, Jay-Z, Lil Wayne, and so many others. Would they have become such pop culture icons if certain paths were never crossed? Without passing judgment, without glorifying it, the Undecideds will guide you through the troubled backstage of hip-hop to its rise onto the worldly stage. So if you don't know, now you'll know. Episode 3, Calvin Bacot, a.k.a. Calvin Klein. Maryland, 1989. The cops pull a car over. Inside that car, two young men risking a 40-year sentence because of some messed-up story. One of them is a young rapper called Sean Carter. The other... Calvin Bacot, a hot shot from Brooklyn who decided to take the blame for the whole mess. Calvin's decision would change the fate of the future Jay-Z. Here's the story of Calvin Bacot, a.k.a. Calvin Klein. Calvin Bacot was born on May 20th, 1966 in the Red Hook section of Brooklyn where Al Capone had cut his teeth back in the day. Calvin was raised by his parents along with his older brother and sister, They lived simply in a modest, church-going, close-knit family. At a very young age, he was exposed to gun violence. At five, he found his father's stash handgun and shot both his older brother Kenneth and a friend. More fear than harm, at least this time around. If a man of peace like Calvin's father owned a gun, it only shows you that Brooklyn back in the day was very different than it is today. Hipsters didn't exist yet. It was pretty common to see a friend shot dead, as Calvin would later tell Don Diva magazine. Just like that day in 1976, when he was 10 and he lost his girlfriend in a shooting that happened after a bad deal that a brother had set up. Brooklyn has changed a lot over the years. In the 1930s, after the Great Depression, immigrants from South America and the Caribbean started moving in. Later, when the United States entered World War II, the Brooklyn Navy Yard offered thousands of job opportunities to these newcomers. Because of gentrification, longtime Jewish and Italian families moved to more welcoming neighborhoods of Queens and Long Island. A few years later, the African-American community represented more than half the population of Brooklyn. Unfortunately, they wouldn't be able to take advantage of the naval activity for long. The Defense Department closed the Navy Yard in 1966 and left over 10,000 people jobless. On top of that, the authorities had a horrible plan for the neighborhood, redlining. This discriminatory practice, created by the Federal Housing Authority during the Depression, discouraged banks from investing in certain areas. It drastically limited services and facilities in the heart of the neighborhoods. No more doctors, supermarkets, shops, or anything else for that matter. 
creating ghettos where residents were left isolated with little to no future. New York's hip-hop scene grew out of these ruins. And like all the other kids of that hood, Calvin Bacot caught the bug. He started by breakdancing, wearing out his jeans on the sidewalk like hundreds of other street kids. At the age of 13, he discovered another side of hip-hop. One day, he went to one of those new Brooklyn block parties with a friend that everybody called Clark Kent. The mood was strangely chill compared to life on the streets. That was the night that Calvin found his calling. He was fascinated by the DJ, the way he thrilled his audience. It was set. He, too, was going to be a DJ. All he needed was some money to buy his equipment, but that was way beyond his means, unless he went about it a different way. Another night, another DJ battle. Calvin's brother, Kenneth, asked him if he still wanted to DJ, and the smile on Calvin's face said it all. That's all it took for Kenneth to pull a gun and get the equipment his brother needed. That night, Calvin became DJ Cal Free, but his fame never went any further than the walls of his room. Calvin wanted to shine, but mostly because of the jewelry and fancy cars he dreamed of owning. Like every teen in the hood, he wanted to look like one of the gang leaders. He started his street career as a petty thief, purse and jewelry snatcher. He was known as a stick-up kid, specialty of the kids in Brooklyn. Some even called him Brooklyn shoot 'em up bang bang. For Calvin and his friends, their day job was walking around the streets of the city in search of gold chains to snatch. Once done looting, they would sell to local jewelers who looked the other way. For Calvin, a good day was when the jeweler scales tipped all the way over to one side. If the stolen chain was fake, it was no problem. Calvin knew people who could stamp gold on it before he sold it. This routine could have gone on for a long time, but Calvin soon realized the persuasive power of guns. So he left the petty theft to the younger guys and took his game up a notch. Actually, it was more like a speeding train. Calvin became a legend on a summer day in 1980. His first move, stroke of genius, the type of hit that people talk about for generations. It made their eyes light up. An armed robbery of the F train. It's a robbery, so give us everything you have and shut the fuck up. Calvin and his crew decided to rob all the passengers on the F train between Brooklyn and Queens. All of them. No exceptions. Not fearing the police or anyone else, they went from car to car, filling their bags with chains, wallets, cash, watches, and got ghosts. A legend was born. Notorious B.I.G., the legendary rapper from Brooklyn, tells the story in the intro of his first album, Ready to Die. Calvin's reputation was spreading fast in Brooklyn. From then on, he got everything neighborhood kids dreamed of. Cars, jewelry, and ridiculously expensive clothes. And not just any clothes. Calvin got used to showing off around town, dressed head to toe in Calvin Klein. A young gangster who noticed him in early 1982 baptized him, Calvin Klein Bacot. This young gangster was none other than 50 Cent. Not the rapper, the original. The guy who was ready to mug anybody 
even for 50 cents. We all know legends like these don't last long. In 1983, Calvin Bacote was arrested for armed robbery and did three years in Omara State Prison. In 1986, right out of jail, Calvin decided on a new direction. He was done with stealing, but not with crime. He wanted to be more like his brother Kenneth, his role model, and started dealing drugs. That same year, without knowing it, Calvin met someone who would change the course of his life. A sharp 17-year-old from the Marcy Projects in Brooklyn with the name of Sean Carter that the world will soon know as Jay-Z. As they became friends, Jay-Z started giving him a hand with some small jobs. Calvin met someone else who'd have a major impact in his future. One night, as Calvin was dealing a $5 dose to a crackhead, he was stabbed. He crossed the street covered in blood and literally ran into one of Brooklyn's bosses, Danny Diamonds. Diamonds offered to help and quickly took Calvin under his wing, showing him A to Z of drug dealing. Calvin became one of his main pushers. Danny was impressed by how quickly Calvin could move kilos of coke in his hood, turning Red Hook into a veritable gold mine. Calvin's secret? Sleeping only two hours a night and dealing around the clock. Unfortunately, this partnership was about to end. In 1988, while driving on I-95 between D.C. and Virginia, Danny lost control of his big sedan and was thrown from his car. He died on the spot. Legend has it, Danny was put to rest wearing more than 100000 worth of jewelry. Calvin lost not only a partner, but a friend. 1988 was not a good year. Calvin had to appear in court for an alleged murder and illegal possession of firearms. Like many gangsters at that time, he sought out the services of New York lawyer George Scheinberg, who promised to get him out by the end of the year. Some lawyers do keep their promises. Ten months after the verdict, Calvin was cleared on all charges. Calvin was free to get back to business and make it even more prosperous. Expanding his empire, he was pushing 100 kilos of cocaine a month on about 38 street corners in Brooklyn alone. But for some people, money can be a bore, and Calvin was one of those people. He was into the struggle for power and putting fear in his enemy's eyes. So Calvin went back to his first love, stick-ups. This time around, he would rob dealers and make sure to leave his signature behind a little something to add to his legendary status. And it worked out. His reputation soared, reaching past the city, beyond the tri-state limits, and spreading all over the East Coast. Exit Calvin Klein. Enter the Brooklyn Don, his new nickname. Meanwhile in Brooklyn, one of his friends was in doubt. The young Jay-Z was torn between the two areas he excelled in, rap and dealing. At that time, Jay-Z used to take commuter trains to carry the bags of coke he was pushing for Calvin. These long trips gave him time to work on his rhymes and memorize them, never writing anything down. 
Calvin respected Jay-Z's MCing talent and played his demos to an old friend, Lance Unrivera. Lance was already in the business and was handling another promising MC from Brooklyn, Christopher Wallace, a.k.a. Notorious B.I.G. But Calvin's priority was still dealing, and like a lot of other New York drug lords, he saw the local market reaching its saturation point. So he offered his services out of state in North Carolina, Virginia, and Maryland. It was in Maryland where his fate was sealed. In 1989, Calvin and a dozen of his friends, including Jay-Z, headed there for business. When the deal was done, they went to a party in Elktown, or E-Town. There was a good vibe. Jay-Z even rapped a few rhymes on stage. It was a perfect evening until out of nowhere, a fight broke out, leaving a guy badly hurt on the floor. Calvin and Jay-Z think they could just get in the car and go back to Brooklyn like nothing happened. However, the police had no doubt about it. That green BMW with New York plates had been identified by witnesses. Within a minute, they switched from partygoers on their way home to suspects charged with attempted murder, battery, assault, and possession of a deadly weapon. Each of them could get 40 years. At the police station, Calvin and Jay-Z try to make the alleged victim hear reason. He was only half convinced and decided to uphold the charges, but only against one of them. Jay-Z, considering Calvin's criminal record, stepped up to the plate. Just go get me Scheinberg and bail me out. Calvin refused. Jay-Z was young and had a chance to become a main player in rap. Much more experienced with the justice system, Calvin accepted full responsibility. While awaiting trial, Jay-Z picks up $50,000 from one of their hidden stashes to bail him out. Touched by his friend's loyalty and courage, Jay-Z did his best to help Calvin at the trial. As his career was beginning to take off with a few tours around the country, Jay-Z took time to write a witness statement to the judge, attesting to what he saw that night. Despite all his efforts, Calvin was sentenced to four years. Those four years were just the tip of the iceberg because many more were about to be added for another offense. Early in 1991, on his way to Atlanta with his brother, Calvin was arrested by the feds who had their eye on him for quite some time. They found no less than $250,000 cash in his car. The ongoing investigation turned up several suspiciously hefty bank accounts. All in all, between the two trials, Calvin was looking at 25 years for conspiracy, drug trafficking, and money laundering. As it turned out, he got 15 years instead. In 1991, when he went to prison, the press estimated the Calvin Klein Bacote Empire was worth $28 million. Locked up at Terre Haute Prison in Indiana, he found himself in good company. There, he met with other drug lords like Jorge Rivera, a.k.a. Boy George from the Bronx, and Bo Waterhead Bennett, one-time business partner of Michael Harrio from L.A. As Calvin settled quietly in a prison routine, nothing prevented him from getting on with his business. One day in 96, 
Calvin was on the phone with one of his friends, Tata. As usual, they just be talking about the old neighborhood and the crew. But Tata couldn't wait to tell him that he was with Jay-Z and handed Jay-Z the phone. Calvin hung up right away. He knew that all outgoing calls were tapped. He didn't want them to suspect Jay-Z of being involved in any way. Fame was just around the corner for Jay-Z. That same year, Jay released his first album, Reasonable Doubt, on the Rockefeller label, which he founded with two partners, Dame Dash and Kareem Biggs Burke. The name of the label was obviously a reference to millionaire David Rockefeller, but also to Rockefeller, an old gang leader from the Marcy Projects where Jay-Z grew up. And since everyone knows each other in Brooklyn, Clark Kent, with whom Calvin dreamt of becoming a DJ, produced three songs on the album. And that album sold 1.5 million copies. Away from the hustle, Calvin went on to serve his time in South Carolina. And that was where another encounter would twist his fate once again. During a prison visit, a fellow inmate told his cousin how he walked the prison yard with the legendary Calvin Klein. Skeptical at first, the cousin already known as Akon couldn't hide his admiration when he saw Calvin appear in the visitor's room. They talked and talked for a long time, and a true friendship was born. In 2004, as he got out of prison and served only 13 of his 15-year sentence, Calvin became Akon's manager. At the time, Akon was already an award-winning artist, and yet he gave Calvin the position of director of Convict Music, Akon's label. As for Jay-Z, who was now a heavyweight rapper and successful businessman, he wasn't forgetting his friend. He often reached out to him for advice and to offer help in any way. Calvin explained to Jay-Z, from then on, he'd be sticking to exclusively legal activities in the music business. He'd seen what happened to the Murder, Inc. label and didn't want to make the same mistakes as Irv Gotti and Supreme McGriff. Calvin started to look for more solid investments. On a trip to South Carolina, he got wind of a golden opportunity in property development. The only problem was he had to come up with $10 million that he didn't have. Of course, he spoke about it to Jay-Z, who agreed to help. Unfortunately, news travels fast, and during their negotiations, the dealmakers learned that Jay-Z was involved and tripled the stake. From $10 million, the price shot up to $30 million. A few weeks later, Jay-Z wanted to figure out what was happening with the deal, and since Calvin didn't want to ask his friend for $30 million, instead, he just told him that the sellers withdrew. Surprised and angry, Jay-Z coldly suggested that next time he should contact him when he had a project that would be worth his time and then hung up on him. Calvin's pride was hurt. He was wounded and it put a lot of distance between him and his friend of 20 years. That distance kept growing. Jay-Z became an international star. Forbes quoted his net worth at $810 million. As for Calvin... He published his memoirs in 2014, entitled Neighborhoods Under Siege. His book was number one on Amazon the week it was released. Ironically, Calvin Bacote confessed in his pages that he never liked his nickname, Calvin Klein. Since then, Calvin has chosen the path of personal redemption, 
devoting himself to his community and doing everything he can to support it. He founded the Calvin Bacot Foundation, where he's in regular contact with young people in difficulty and supports ex-convicts integration into society. He made an appearance at Harvard University speaking about police brutality. Today, Calvin just wants to share his life story in order to help those who resemble the guy he used to be. I'm not asking young people to put down their weapons. I prefer to ask them why they picked them up in the first place. Find the playlist related to the episodes on all the streaming platforms and on theundersiders.com. The Undersiders is produced by Angle and created by Francois Cousset. Sound production by V in Paris, France. Original scores by Max Zeeple. English version narrated by Ellis Park and recorded at Lotus Productions in New York City. Find more episodes of The Undersiders anywhere you find podcasts and on theundersiders.com.